Hello and welcome to Politics on Draft, episode four, with me, James Tabor. And me, Kartik Sawney. And today we will be your bartenders serving you up the amazing drink that is politics. But first, let's find out what our own bar staff are drinking today. Oh, Kartik. Christ alive. <laughs> <laughs> Kartik, what are, you, what are you drinking? Uh, I'm drinking some limoncello that I got from Duty Free when I went on a holiday with all of my friends to Italy. Uh, and I decided I'd open it um, today. So, yay. That's what I'm drinking. What are you drinking? I'm drinking Heineken, um, the best of malt lagers, in my opinion. But okay. yeah, obviously, it's, as I said, probably the last couple of episodes, it's bloody hot, as it always seems to be. It's so. not that hot anymore. God. Yes, it is. It's really not that hot anymore. But okay, anyway. I'm a pasty white man. This is what I have to deal with, right? <laughs> Leave me alone. Um, but anyway, let's start pouring some politics now just for the record if anyone actually uh gives us a review to upsetting pints the instagram page i will be very fuming <laughs> um but anyway kartik what has been going on this week in politics so i want to get through a lot of issues that's been going on I, th I thought it was a slow news day and you know when you slow news week if you like but then when you actually delve deep in and you do a lot of research you realize there's a lot going on in the world my f the first point i sort of want to go in on a somber point because what's happening is really horrible so and a lot of people don't know what's happening um so i want to cover a region in northern ethiopia called tigray now tigray is a part of northern Ethiopia and there has been regional and ethnic conflict there since the Ethiopian civil war in 1991. Now for the last couple of months there's been a ceasefire but fighting has since resumed and both the TDF, the Tigray Defence Force and the ENDF which is the Ethiopian National Defence Force blame each other for restarting the conflict. Now the reason I'm bringing this up on the podcast is because I want to encourage everyone to go and research this issue to the best of their ability. The media has barely touched on this. You have to go actively searching for it. You won't find it on a BBC headline. You won't find it on 10 o'clock BBC News when you're back from work. And in times of political uncertainty and fragility, it's important to recognise issues going on in the world and inform ourselves. So just so you have an idea of how severe it is, approximately 2.3 million children have been cut off from humanitarian aid. There have been several attacks on humanitarian workers by the Ethiopian government soldiers. Uh, and, you know, there's been horrific ethnic cleansing, genocide, and I'm really sorry to say this, but even rape has been used as a weapon of war. So therefore, in the interest of humanity, please go and educate yourself to the best of your ability on this issue. Um, I don't feel confident enough to talk about this at length, but I want to make this issue as aware as possible. Uh, I want everyone to be as aware of this issue as possible. So please go and search up Tigray. That's T-I-G-R-A-Y. Hmm. And it's it's quite interesting because I was reading a BBC article about this. It wasn't like a big headline. It was mm -hmm. sort of within the kind of like lower end. To dig of deep. The, yeah, dig deep into the BBC. And they talk about um, Tedros uh I don't, I'm, I'm going to completely butcher his neck at the second name, but the boss is the, the president well, of the WHO. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah president yeah. of the WHO. And um, he basically was talking about the fact that the response uh, between 
what's happening in Tigray and what's happening in Ukraine is very, very different. Mm-hmm. And he was debating why it's very, very different. And he has suggested that racism is behind the difference in response. Yeah, I, I, I saw this. And uh, the, 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 the part I didn't like from the president of the WHO is he was trying to compare, you know, what's happening in Tigray's West. I don't want anyone to do that. What's happening overall in the world is very, very bad. So, mm. but I think racism might play a factor in not giving light to these issues in Tigray, not giving mm. light to issues mm. in Israel-Palestine. You know, the, these issues need to be discussed and the research needs to go in from our side if the mass media is not going to give it to us. I think it's just this, intri- it's like, is it intrinsic or just um, unconscious bias? that exists and it just so happens that this bias is very discriminatory and yeah. it, we would do well to actually cover it in our media. I mean, it's like the BBC are talking, they have made an article about the fact that the coverage has not been very... But they're, they're one of the well biggest covered. news corporations worldwide. Exactly. They're responsible for their <laughs> fucking coverage. Why? Exactly. It, it's so <laughs> baffling to me. We'll come fact. on to the BBC in a second. It's so baffling, the fact that the BBC have made this article saying there needs to be more coverage, but aren't actually doing the coverage themselves. Mm. And I know it's because of that whole, they need to be uh, uh, impartial, which is something we're going to get onto and we're going to segue onto in a bit. I say segue a lot. I noticed that when I was listening back to last episode. (laughs) But um, that's all right. I do like That's fine. I I say Um, that a lot as well. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, no, it is, it is, it is bad. And there's lots of genocides in, in around the world that are happening, which don't get equal amount of coverage. One of the big ones, the Uyghurs in China, that mm-hmm. doesn't get any coverage. Um, yeah. and it's annoying because it is a humanitarian crisis. But. Yeah. But to our second point, mm. Rishi Sunak has come out in criticism of the government's COVID management and. Which he was a part of. Which he was a part of. He was he was chancellor uh, during that. He he has said that there has not been enough due diligence into these lockdowns, and and that experts slash scientists were given too much power. And I think this is just a very very sad attempt to drum up more Tory support. And he also stated that number one, he was emotional after cabinet meetings, uh, and he stated that the minutes of meetings had been altered so as to drown out the dissenting voices. What do you think about that, James? Well, clearly he wasn't that emotional because he then decided to go out and party with Boris in the evening. Um, yeah. I, to be honest, I think I, it's the only time I'm actually ever going to agree with uh, with Dominic Cummings. I think I think what he said is utter, utter rubbish. Um, mm-hmm. But something that Dominic Cummings actually said. Now, I know that there's a slight skew in opinion there because Dominic Cummings... Mm-hmm. Um, and Sunak were constantly at odds with each other in terms of how they believed government should be run. Yeah. Uh, Dominic Cummings said that actually it's dangerous, that the lying is is very dangerous. And I think that's a very interesting point to bring up, especially in the context of our big discussion that we're going mm-hmm. to have later on to do with the way that government um, acts, how they behave, how they approach the role of so-called nobility that should be um, enacted with grace and decorum but mm-hmm. um, yeah it's a, very, it's a very interesting it's completely populist what it is is that he's trying to say to all of the Tory members 
this lot listened to the experts too much. I wouldn't have listened to the experts. And there was a lot of discussion around that during the COVID pandemic about listening to the experts and listening to the scientists. And what I, I fail to understand is why is it even a discussion that during a global pandemic, we should or shouldn't listen to experts and scientists? That's exactly who we should be listening to. Because the vast majority of MPs and cabinet ministers not properly briefed, and that's a whole whole other d discussion to have. But if they're not going to be properly briefed, then the experts and scientists during a global pandemic are the people that should be listened to. End of mm. discussion. But that's my I, opinion. I agree. And uh, someone else who would definitely uh, agree with you is um, one of the earliest thinkers of politics, Plato. Mm. And uh, okay. that's another that's another tease into what we're going to get into uh, later. Mm -hmm. uh, try and work out what we're going to be talking about but what's the yeah. next point well they've already seen what, the, what what we're going to talk about when they watch it on spotify james come on this the next point is the regional divide in the gcse grades has widened since covid now number one i just want to say well done to everyone who got their gcse grades but if mm. you didn't do that well um don't worry i had shit gcse grades but now i'm in uni and i got very good a levels and you know i'm privileged enough to be doing a podcast with james table uh, <laughs> uh, but anyway so what the grades have shown is that since the pandemic the regional divide has widened and i, I encourage everyone to go and look at the data on this uh, because london schools perform significantly better than everywhere else so there's a divide between london and the rest of england there's also a significant divide between england and scotland and wales and northern ireland and what can this be put down to is my question. Can this be put down to underfunding of schools outside of London? I think it can. Um, what does it say about, you know, the bullshit populist levelling up agenda of this Conservative government, which has, by the way, been leading the country for the last 12 years, so they can't legitimately blame Labour or anyone else when it comes to their fuck-ups or the lack of, you know, tightening that divide. So what do you think about that, James? Yeah, I, I, I do... I agree with you. I think it's one of those ones where school schooling has always been in, in the in the eyes of the public in terms of scrutiny because obviously it's it, it it's public fund it's publicly funded and mm. so the divisions are much more accountable. I.e., people should be held to account over different levels of performance. Mm -hmm. And that a hundred percent is differences in the levels of funding, as Rishi Sunak stated when he did that big speech at Tunbridge Wells that we spoke about recently. Mm -hmm. There is differences in funding about how uh, the the leveling up funding. It's very interesting how uh, I think Burnley didn't receive any leveling up funding, mm -hmm. but Rishi Sunak's constituency of Richmond did. Yeah. Despite the average, I think the average uh, sort of GDP per capita in Richmond being a lot higher than Burnley. Don't don't hold me to that, but I'm pretty sure I read somewhere mm -hmm. uh, that sort of metric existed. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah, very interesting. God, I'm just segueing into our main point even more now. God. Uh, so um, <laughs> our main point is going to link in with this story, which is Emily Maitlis. So now Emily Maitlis recently left the BBC. She's been, she's been, in my opinion, the only journalist at the BBC actually doing her 
job as a journalist. Uh, but now she's at LBC. But now that she's come to LBC, she's come out against her BBC bosses uh, in the claim that there was an active Tory agent uh, on the BBC board uh, acting in favour of the impartiality that the BBC likes to uh, claim it has. So Robbie Gibb, who she didn't mention by name, but I think everyone knew, the person who helped found GB News and was the ex-communications advisor to Theresa May, was appointed to the BBC board by the Johnson government. Now, Emily Maitlis has said that it's one-sidedism in her opinion, has favoured the Conservatives in the, in the interest of an equal perspective. And Maitlis said that the Leave campaign lied to the British public about Brexit and that the media effectively allowed it to happen. The lying, not Brexit. Um, and I know that a lot of people our age don't really care about Brexit or they don't really talk about it, but that's the reason for a lot of problems that the country currently faces and a lot of problems that our generation will face going forward. We will have less jobs, we will have less benefits, we'll have less opportunity of jobs of working in, in Europe. But there's an extract from our speech that is going to allow us to move on to our main topic. Um, she said that things that, things that for many decades were givens, the checks and balances on the executive, the role of the judiciary, or the civil service, a media free from interference or vilification, now appear vulnerable. Things that once sh would have shocked us now seem commonplace. The ministerial code violated with impunity, the unlawful attempt to prorogue parliament for five weeks, the blink and you miss it moment, the governing party's Twitter account changing its name to Fact Check UK in the middle of an election campaign to cope property pro party propaganda in a format that sounded objective. So she said that she's not going to extract the long-term outcomes of this, but, and she'll leave it to other people and I think we can rightfully claim to be those other people who can analyze what she said there, but she, she sort of analyzed what journalists felt about that and the free nature of the media felt about that. So for everyone's information, the conservative party constantly discusses axing the license fee for the BBC uh, and it's funding for the BBC. And this is what keeps the BBC on their toes and constantly changes their reporting on certain issues and allows certain things to just go. So in the interest of impartiality, they're not calling out the things that need to be called out. What do you think about that, James? Yeah, and I can't remember. There was a... I'm trying to remember who it was. I think it might have been Steve Barkley mm -hmm. before she then before he then got shouted out by some woman outside the hospital. Mm -hmm. But it might have been someone else. I can't remember. All the Tory uh, front benches tend to kind of merge into one to me. There's this kind of mm -hmm. call of destitution and uh, <laughs> just just awful, awful speaking. Um, but one of them states, was talking about the appointments of Ofcom and the BBC, <laughs> saying like it's really good to see conservative, uh, conservative members at the helm of Ofcom. I can't remember who it is, but it was a really like kind of eye-opening uh, perspective on mm -hmm. how the BBC is run. And it's interesting because, so with the BBC, because it's publicly funded and because everybody pays for it, it's one of those things where everybody's going to have an opinion on how it's run. So conservatives will probably argue that it's very left-wing. And especially mm -hmm. when you, when you kind of, 
when you listen or when you watch uh, the TV programs like Mock the Week. Very sad that it's going uh, off air, and um, and things like Have I Got News for You and other like sort of comedian sort of base things that the BBC uh, BBC Two have kind of advocated for. But then you know people on the left will say that it's, it's an inherently conservative um, organization, and that's just the nature of a publicly funded entertainment based industry is that you're always going to get people who think it it's more on the other side um but the bbc news specifically is something which is probably because entertainment you can understand everyone's got an opinion freedom of expression if a producer wants to have a more kind of left-wing view they can have that it's the news that is the most important here and i think mm-hmm. emily maitlis has exposed a very interesting take on how the BBC is run. And to be honest, I'm not sure what's going to happen next. I'm not even going to try and sort of predict what's next for the BBC in terms of whether I, or I, not I, gone. Yeah, I, I, don't, I don't know what's going to happen next for the BBC. But I also don't want to state that the government is suddenly controlling, like there's some sort of malignant force that's controlling the BBC she's arguing that the method of journalism which she's coined both sides both both sideism um tries to strike a superficial balance between you know what's right and what's wrong while obscuring what is the actual fact it's mm. it's like saying you know if, if we're going to have someone on the news talking about whether the sky is blue and then they have to go out and find someone that says no the sky isn't blue it's yellow like yeah it's just obscuring the main main element of the fact but so it's not to say that the government is actively controlling the bbc but from what i've observed over the last three years of this government is that the government and in fact the last seven years since brexit the sort of ultra right wing of the conservative party and the ultra right elements within british politics they seem to have a problem with anything that is independent from them they have yeah. a problem with Parliament, and they try to change it. They have a problem with the judiciary, and they call them the enemies of the people. They call uh, they have a problem with the BBC, so they uh, threaten to axe their license fee. Yeah. So, and the, the BBC one, whilst judiciary and Parliament are two very, very important tenets of British politics, the BBC is where most of the British public rely on what the most what most of the British public rely on to get their information. But their favourite broadcaster seems to be skewed or bought. Yeah, and to kind of, before we kind of go on to the main point, because it really is a good way to kind of connect the, the two two areas together, um, if you compare it against, say, the American uh, news system, now I'm not saying it's some, like, perfect thing that we should all try and aim for, but with the American news system, you kind of know what you're getting. For instance, if you were to watch Fox News, you know you're getting a more kind of more right-wing more conservative more republican-based viewpoint if you go for cnn i'm I'm gonna gonna interrupt you because i don't i don't agree with the way the americans run their news it's just complete no no, because because at the end of the day there are still going to be vulnerable people out there that are going to get influenced it's it's the same with andrew tate like like most of the people know exactly what they're getting with andrew tate but he still damages people and the same way the american media agree that the system isn't done isn't done well but I'd much prefer a system where you see lots of different news broadcasters where you know what they advocate for rather than a sort of a news outlet that claims that they are kind of like this impartial 
um, yeah. nature, but then actually isn't. And then it creates this real kind of existential issue where people are saying, well, hold on a second. I've been influenced by the BBC. I've actually sometimes educated and informed my own voting decision based on the BBC. But actually, now I realise that voting decision has been somewhat manipulated by this, you know, one-sided journalism, by this top-down approach where, you know, the the bosses and the advisors are able to actually kind of uh, instill this sense of ideology within a so-called impartial institution. Yeah, I think that goes into uh, our next point. So what we're going to do is we're going to take a break here and uh, we'll see you for our main topic, which is democracy. So there's been a video uh, from a couple of months ago circling Twitter and TikTok. It's John Major giving evidence to a parliamentary committee. James, have you seen that video? Yes, I have. And I have some very interesting opinions on it. Um, but I'm going to let you kind of monologue about it to inform the listeners. So, yeah. So I watched this video on TikTok. Well, first it came out on Twitter and then I watched it on TikTok. And it was about two minutes long. Uh, and it was John Major giving evidence. John Major being uh, ex-Prime Minister from 1992 to 1997. Am I wrong? Am I right? Uh, 1997. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. 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 So John Major was the UK Prime Minister under the Conservative Party from 1992 to 1997. He was also briefly Chancellor of the Exchequer to uh, Margaret Thatcher. Am I correct? Was he Chancellor? Oh, I don't know. That's a very good data, Paul. I believe, I believe, I believe he was either Chancellor or Foreign Secretary. I believe he was you, Chancellor. You monologue, I'll find out. <laughs> okay, fine. So, I watched this video. It was supposed to be two minutes long, and I watched the video, and I thought, we have to do our podcast on this. Um, and he was discussing democracy and I've now watched for the benefit of our listeners about eight hours of footage of John Major talking and about, you know, three to four hours of reading about John Major. And I just want to say it's been so refreshing to watch and research John Major as much as my personal politics is largely in disagreement with his, the level of discussion he's at is so much higher than where we are at right now, not in terms of the podcast, but as sort of in, in politics. Um, especially in the last seven years. And I think this links in with the previous points of how the current state of our democracy is so damaged that we have been reduced to sound bites and proper political discussion is completely gone as a result of the populism that the Conservative Party and the far-right elements within British politics has brought in. And it's also important to mention the youth aspect because a lot of our listeners are younger people, is that most of my people are not going to go back and researched John Major or previous Prime Ministers, but I pray that the level of discourse that I saw whilst researching John Major is raised to that level or higher, because the level that we're at right now as a result of Boris Johnson is simply not there. But anyway, what I want to talk about is what he discussed. So he outlined everything that the government has done wrong, unlawful prorogation of Parliament, broken its own lockdown rules, changed the rules of Parliament to protect its own, and... He said that that was an exclusive list. He said that he had more, but he didn't want to bring it up right there and then. So he wanted to address the damage, how widespread the damage of this is. It's outside of Parliament. And he straight away dips into the idea that democracy is in regression internationally. And that we, as four nations of the United Kingdom, we take democracy for granted. And that democracy is not inevitable. It can be undone step by step 
falsehood by falsehood and need to be protected at all times. And in another video, he discussed a brick analogy. The idea that if a brick is taken out of a wall, the wall inherently gets weaker and that multiple bricks in terms of laws, conventions, independent judiciary, independent media are being taken out that we're on a slippery slope. And it's important to speak out before the wall collapses entirely. And he, he doesn't say that the wall of democracy is going to collapse entirely. He believes that it will be saved. But it's important to mention, it's, it's important to call out what's going wrong. So the last three years has damaged Parliament at home and overseas in the sense that if there's a lack of trust in what goes on in Parliament, therefore there's a lack of trust overseas. We'll cover this in another point as well right now. And the blame for these lapses in judgment lie principally, but not exclusively, with Boris Johnson as the Prime Minister. But everything can be corrected. And he was very, very careful to not trivialise this as just Boris Johnson. Because Boris Johnson tends to trivialise everything. Oh, it's Boris. He's going he's gonna to make those mistakes. He tries to make this a thematic issue that's been going on in Parliament and internationally. He also made a statement in one of his other speeches that when America sneezes, the UK catches a cold. So mm. in the second episode, we covered what was going on in America. If they're sneezing, we might well catch that cold. It's, yeah. We're not immune to that. So, yeah. What, do you th what did you think about the two-minute video? And what, if you've done any research on democracy and everything, what do you think about everything, James? So John Mage was a very interesting character. So, but first of all, uh, he, was, he was actually prime minister from 1990 to 19. Uh, 97 so okay. he, he came in uh, at 1990 and then he won the 1992 election um, nice. and yes he was uh, the Chancellor of the Exchequer for a point under um, under Maggie Thatcher um, God I <laughs> I think in comparison to uh, to recent Chancellor of the Exchequer he's not too bad yeah. um, I my view on John Major is very is very split with regards to this uh, this uh, video because I agree with everything he says in the video. I agree about the stuff that he mentioned about the honors list, and we'll get into that in a, in a little little bit. I agreed about his his. Um, his criticism of how the donor donation systems in uh, elections work and how our electoral system fosters a sense of corruption and a sense of entitlement where unelected people can have influence can can influence public policy but there was a there was a, there was a crucial caveat in what he said which i can get on board with and the caveat was that he said that we need to get rid of the perception that there is corruption and that there is a lack of democracy. Why? Because he didn't. He didn't say he wants to get rid of it. He still wants to get rid of the perception. So. Uh, See, no, okay, no, go on, and I'm going to interject later. Go on. So. Please. Yeah, he hasn't specifically said he wants to actually, you know, solve the issues. He just wants to get rid of the perception. Now, in, that might implicitly mean that it does actually end up rooting out all of the toxicity and all of the 
um, sort of corrupt, corrupt elements of politics that plague our political system. But I still believe there was a there was a sense of elitism in what he he said there. So I agree with what he says needs to be done, but I'm not sure whether or not his politics kind of diametrically opposes a bit of what he says. But you go ahead because I think you have. Think, a okay, okay. I I sort of agree with what you're saying. Yes, the corruption that happens in politics needs to go, but. The perception of it is, in my opinion, far more damaging than the actual corruption itself. And people may disagree with me, and that's fine. But trust and trust of government and within a democracy is fundamental to the success of democracy. Democracy and government cannot function properly, and people cannot be governed if policy and words are treated with suspicion. At the moment, and he he mentioned this in his speech, uh, the UCL Constitution Unit, did this assessment. The public trusts courts more than the civil service, the civil service more than parliament, and parliament more than the prime minister. Now, this shows a decline in the trust in the elected portion of a democracy. So if people inherently do not trust the people that they elect, that's damaging. Mm. Straight away, that's damaging. Because yep. you're saying that there are unelected people that you trust more than the people that are elected. Now, without the trust of the public, politics is in complete dis disarray, and we lose faith of the public at home and allies abroad. If you look at, I wanted to reference this earlier, but if you look at the situation in Russia, Ukraine, initially, Boris Johnson was very, very proud that he had a, you know, a brief chat with Putin over the phone. But Macron had a five hour discussion over a marble table. What does that say about, you know, mm. the position of Britain in geopolitical circles? What do you think about that? No, I, I, I do, I do know what you mean. And at the end of the day, there's always this public element. Um, there was always the public element to it, and because of the way our democracy is enacted through represented, like it's a representative democracy, indirect democracy, there's always these levels of accountability. And I agree with what you said about how if we don't have a trust-based system, mm -hmm. then our democracy is. I don't think it necessarily like means that our democracy is disappeared but it renders the democracy and the democratic democratic systems that we have in place futile it's it's not it's not that the democracy has disappeared it means that the vast majority of the public no longer care mm. to support or protect that democracy that that's what that's what he was saying in his original two minute speech of we the four nations in the uk take democracy for granted there are certain benefits to it but there are also inherent inherent elements that we we no longer value as a result of people like Boris Johnson, as a result of you know the three hundred and fifty million back to the NHS a week. That hasn't happened. There hasn't been a sudden influx of money towards the NHS as a result of Brexit. Now people are not going to trust the next word that comes out, and they're going to think that all politicians are the same. People are not going to bother to vote for Keir Starmer, and that's why he's made that point so clear that not all politicians are the same. Absolutely. And I, that's something that I have to have that conversation with so many people who believe that either politics doesn't apply to them or that, uh, you know, politics doesn't, doesn't mean anything and that all politicians are liars. But the reality is, is that politics can apply for you and that politics, you know, can be a real cause for change. It's just the current current actors that are within the political sphere in the UK mm -hmm. 
are plaguing it. And these are the people like your Boris Johnsons, like your Nadine Dorises, like your Jacob Rees-Moggs, who mm -hmm. are insistent in this kind of, you know, oh, yeah, the public let us in, but they're basically giving us a free passage to do whatever the fuck we want. Mm -hmm. And I I mean, the list is extensive. Sweller Braverman, for example. I actually think Sweller Braverman is one of the most embarrassing secretary generals that we've ever had in this country. Attorney Someone, General. Attorney General, sorry. Mm -hmm. It's somebody who, who is supposed to be the, the, the highest point and upholding of the legislature who is supposed to protect us in our own rights and simply just wants to change the law whenever it best suits getting through the conservative agenda, often <laughs> an agenda that funny enough isn't mandated within the 2019 manifesto, which I think is a very interesting dynamic. I mean, something that was actually brought up in a book that I, that I've been reading by AC Grayling uh, about the fact that funny enough whippage and going ag ag against the uh, their own manifesto is something that's really plaguing our democracy. Yeah. I mean, it's it's not just a issue of manifesto and real policy. These are the same political figures that fought the Brexit referendum to protect parliamentary sovereignty and the sanctity of law. And this is the same government that unlawfully prorogued parliament and broke its own lockdown rules and has consist consistently fractured standards in public life. So... I guess they forgot to protect the sanctity of law and mm. parliamentary sovereignty mm. from themselves. Boris Johnson government, I believe, prorogued parliament in October of 2019 to stop the discussion on Brexit happening because they, be they believe that the debate that would happen in parliament wouldn't benefit them. Mm. And this was unanimously ruled by the Supreme Court that this prorogation was unlawful and the Queen was misled. So, you know, the whole monarchist, not monarchist, we can have that discussion another time, but the whole monarchist, non-monarchist idea only goes as far as to protect themselves and gain votes. But once they get to it, they're not really monarchists. And furthermore, I, I wanted to discuss this more at depth, but the idea that they fought the referendum to make a more global Britain, but are now challenging themselves and Britain, Britain's global standing through their own actions is stupefying. The idea that they wanted Britain to be more global, but then cut the overseas development aid budget is, to be honest, really fucking irritating, especially when you look at things like Tigray, like Ukraine-Russia, like Israel-Palestine, like the Uyghurs. Yeah, and I, I, I totally agree with you. And it's, it's really hard when you talk about democracy in terms of the UK, because ultimately we, we elected Boris. And that's obviously very sort of disappointing to listen to now we can go into the dynamics of uh we can go into the dynamics of why he got elected and was it uh you know we can kind of look at the labor side of it and we can look at the fact that it was a brexit vote and the kind of leveraging that happened within the conservative party but it's just really so like for instance let's actually let's let, let's talk about the 2019 um, election just briefly because a lot of people said to said to me I remember in 2019 that the election felt like a choice between two just terrible leaders 
which is very, very bad. The fact that, th that it had to get to that point whereby you had two leaders who the public considered were not that great, but they had to pick one. And I know you don't, we don't constitutionally pick a leader as such, but implicitly we do because I, I believe that we're going, we're, we've moved more presidential than I believe our constitution should allow. What, what, what were kind of your views on the 2019 election and how it kind of affected democracy in the UK? Um, I don't think 20, the 2019 was, election was a choice between two bad people. I don't think, I think there were various things that Jeremy Corbyn got wrong, like, and I've, I've mentioned this before, like, you know, being neutral on Brexit. I think that was a stupid idea. I think he got, it could have got much closer if he took a Remain stance. But we didn't, we as a country overall did not vote for Boris Johnson. 47% voted for Boris Johnson, for, for the Conservatives. And 0.013% of the people voted for Boris Johnson in Oxford. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, and the people picking our next Conservative Prime Minister, by the way, people who are our age and younger, you know, you, you can vote, you can be a Conservative member at the age of 15, but you can't vote in general elections till you're 18. The, the same people that are voting that are 16, people younger than us at the moment, James, mm. believe that 16-year-olds shouldn't have the vote whilst they're picking the next Prime Minister mm. of the UK. <laughs> That's interesting. That's 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 very interesting. Um, I mean, the whole point circles back to what does this say about the state of our democracy? And it doesn't say a whole lot of good, good things. And what I want out of this discussion is everyone to sort of understand what the democratic, what our democratic rights are, and how they can be protected, and why it's good. So hmm. you you done some research on an early description of democracy. Yeah. Why didn't you explain that? And then why didn't you explain to us the current model of democracy that we have is actually good and needs to be protected from the likes of Boris Johnson? So democracy, um, de in the Latin for it being demos kratos, right. which means power to the people, um, was something, a very early concept that was developed in ancient Greece. And... One person who had a concept on democracy was Plato. Mm -hmm. Now I'm going to kind of monologue and then I'm going to kind of talk through the kind of my, at least certainly my opinion over this. So Plato believed that democracy should be available. He believed democracy was a good thing. He believed that um, it's a way to create change. However, he didn't believe it should be available to everyone. <laughs> he believed in this idea of the, the the craftsman analogy, which is where experts sh in their field should be the only ones that participate in democracy because they know what is good for the rest of the people. And it's this kind of trickle down democracy. And the analogy that he gives is that imagine a captain on a ship and his shipmates. Mm -hmm. If the captain is given the decision, the captain knows every single one of the crewmates. He knows all of their different responsibilities and he knows what's best for all of them. I'm saying he, for the, for the matter of it, it could be she. But, um, uh, but if you allow, he, he said, if you allowed all the shipmates to give the decision, what would happen is, is factions would form because mm -hmm. you had different people with different ideas on how the ship should operate. Mm -hmm. And those factions would lead in this kind of Lord of the Flies situation where political violence was uh, 
would start to rise and you'd end up with divisions and this this argue very collective kind of body which is society would become fragmented now i don't believe in plato's idea of democracy or, or his idea of how it should practically work i don't believe that only says an individual should could, could be a, should be able to have democracy because actually i don't i think that that goes against its own sentiment. It's important to mention that Plato was criticising direct democracy. We do not have direct direct democracy. We have representative democracy, number one. So at the moment, experts largely, well, experts in quotation marks, if you count Lynn Struss as an expert, I'm sorry, you have not met the right (laughs) fucking experts. Um, They, well, she's definitely not an expert on foreign fucking policy. Uh, They have the right to govern effectively they are learned Mm. and they they have the right to govern and then the people vote for them i don't like representative democracy as much i also don't i think representative democracy is probably the lesser of two evils when it comes to direct and representative democracy but Mm. plato's model i i disagree with it i've read it before um I believe that the shipmates should have a right to decide which direction the ship goes in, because at the end of the day, where whichever direction the ship goes in, whatever it faces, the whole ship will face it together. Um, and the experts aren't always fucking right. That's my Sorry. opinion. <laughs> I think. I think my so my issue, and I actually did this within some uh, papers that I did for my British politics module, which is where me and Kartik come came to know each other, which is really nice. Um, and that was my argument was that the reason why democracy has been threatened is because we have tried to combine the two types of democracy, direct and indirect representative or direct, if however you want to call it uh, together. And it simply doesn't work because you've got one system that fosters every ma- everybody making decisions about everything. And you've got one that's, well, we will elect people who will make decisions based on our best interest. And the two just don't work together. But direct democracy, you know, so- some countries have been able to make direct democracy work. I can't remember which of the Scandinavian countries. I think it might have been Sweden. I think they use uh, direct democracy. Thank you, Sweden. Um, and that they found that levels of happiness, HDI, all the different metrics of development have mm-hmm. have shot up. Not necessarily as a result of direct democracy, but the, mm-hmm. the, the, the content with politics is there. And I think when we decided to kind of do that referendum, which let's be real, was only to further David Cameron's campaign in 2015. Mm-hmm. When we decided to do that referendum, I think that was that kind of that real stinging point in democracy because you were combining two areas of democracy one of which direct democracy we have not got great history with in terms of the fact that we don't do direct democracy and so one of the big characteristics of direct democracy is the fact it allows manipulative speakers to take a rise hence populism Mm -hmm. and countries such as Sweden might be able to control that. They might have the necessary regulations, the necessary legislature to stop that from happening. We don't. We yeah, don't. And yeah. that's we, do, why, we don't have the media. We don't and have that's media. why, in my opinion, and the overarching reason why democracy has struggled is because we've combined those two mm-hmm. 
in order to in, in, in line with the populist narrative of giving power back to the people you're not giving power back to the people you're giving power to certain actors to rise and manipulate the people into mm -hmm. setting an agenda which benefits funny enough said people yeah um i i disagree with the fact that the reason why we're why we're facing a democratic crisis is because of a combination of direct and indirect i think you picked up on it slightly when you mentioned why we don't do direct democracy is because of the the structures surrounding it are not good enough mm. i'm just going to read an extract from an essay that i wrote in the same british politics class that me and james met in about why I think it's at risk. So I wrote, we can no longer rely upon a sense of unchecked Britishness to determine whether or not our representatives are holding a high standard in public life. We cannot rely on their good faith to resign when they no longer uphold the, the standards British political society requires. So I think it's because those standards have been ignored, because those smaller, smaller bricks have been taken out gradually by certain elements nationally, is the reason why we have such problems and that's my opinion i don't think it's because we combined the two i think it's because of the structures around surrounding our direct democracy is why we have failed to represent the public in a in a in a good enough way i guess but just just to kind of pick up on that, i mean i know you said about the unchecked britishness and the britishness part of that being mm. a completely separate sort of topic in its own right but the un wouldn't you suggest that an unchecked nature is fairly consistent with how direct democracy works and hence we live in a representative democracy but we've got this unchecked direct that's kind of creeping onto the plate and causing these problems with democracy okay it's I, I don't think it's because it's unchecked I think it's because it's not independent you know Ofcom is not independent who we appoint mm. to the BBC is not independent it's recommended by the Prime Minister. That's a problem. That's a problem that needs to be fixed. It's not the fact that it's unchecked. It's the fact that it's susceptible to checking by certain political figures that will use it to their own advantage. Yeah. Actually, so, yeah, that's, that's in, interesting, yeah. In, in, independent, sort of, an independent Ofcom could regulate GB News, BBC News, ITV News in a way that's beneficial to the public mm. because they don't have a higher boss. They don't have a higher standard like the Conservative Party or the Labour Party to listen to. They don't have a particular line to toe. They are only there for the public. And we don't have that in the civil service anymore because people who go into the civil service largely are not there to serve the public. They're there to serve themselves and then angle themselves into a Conservative job or a Labour job. Mm. That's my opinion. But yeah. anyway, I think yeah. that's a nice way to tie everything up. Thank you for listening. My name's been James. My name's been Kartik. And thank you very much for listening to Politics on Draft. We'll see you next week for episode five. Bye-bye.